Bibles tonight to the book of Ephesians chapter number 4. And I want to preach to you for a few moments tonight on the topic of the church. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like we don't really spend a lot of time exploring what the Bible says about church, what the church is and what the church ought to be. And in Ephesians chapter number 4, I believe we have a picture of the model church. And Paul tells us how things ought to be uh, in the house of God. Now, he doesn't say everything because he's not dealing with everything, but he's dealing with the spiritual life of the church, the substance of the church. And so I want us to read a little bit tonight, and uh, I've not got any notes in front of me. I don't normally do that, but I didn't feel uh, in led of the Lord tonight to have any notes in front of me. I might kind of come up with a little bit of an outline off the cuff, but I want you to pray for me tonight. I just want to go through some of these verses and say a few things about it that I believe will be a help to us and an encouragement. Let's begin reading in verse number 1 of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writing says this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the, working of the, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for this day. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your goodness upon my family, Lord, my loved ones and my church family. Lord, You brought us here tonight, and there's so many places we could be, but Your gracious, gracious hand has brought us into Your house. Father, here we are in safety, and here we are in unity, and here we are in fellowship, and here we are in worship. So, Father, we praise You and thank You and bless Your name for all that You've done today. Lord, we also look with a watchful eye to what You will do in our hearts and lives in these next few moments. Father, I pray that You'd have Your will and way in everything that takes place. Lord, we love You tonight. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we've read what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter number 4, one of the things that you've got to grow comfortable with as you study the Pauline epistles is long sentences. If you're not comfortable with long sentences, you're not going to be comfortable with the letters that Paul wrote. 
Because as you look at what we've read, these 16 verses, you're going to find it's really only about four or five sentences. But what he's saying is he's building upon some truths, and he's unveiling some of the grandest truths in the entire Word of God to us. Probably there is no loftier book in the New Testament than the book of Ephesians. It operates almost entirely in the heavenly realm. And as he reveals to us these truths about the church, now he's not, he's not teaching us about what kind of pews we need to have or what kind of pulpit we need. He's not teaching us about what colors we ought to use and what's the proper decorum. But he's dealing with the spiritual life of the church and how a church ought to operate. You're not going to find in these verses that we've read him rebuking anybody because he's dealing with the church as it ought to be. And he begins by saying in verse number 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Now let's pause for a minute. Let's think about the exhortation that Paul gives. He calls the, the, the office of a church member or, or the life of a church member or the experience of a church member, he calls it a vocation. When he gives a name to it, he gives a name to it uh, that we're familiar with the idea of work being associated with. If we were to talk about, for instance, vocational school, what are we talking about? We're not talking about a place that, uh, where uh, theories are learned. We're talking about a place where trades are learned. We're not talking about a place where people go and sit down and dwell upon the grand philosophies of life. We're talking about a place where people go and they get their hands dirty and they get busy and they start to work. And so he uses this term vocation as he speaks of the, the member of the body of Christ. Let me say that, that being a church member is work. If you're expecting to never have to do anything in being a church member, somebody told you wrong. Because being a church member involves work. I don't necessarily just mean service either. I mean effort. I mean work. Uh, we were talking today about some of the experiences uh, that we come upon in church life. And you know, uh, if you're going to stay a faithful member of a church, that, that in and of itself is going to take work. You're going to have to grow as a Christian. You're going to have to learn that there are some things sometimes that you've got to get over and get past to stay faithful to the house of God and faithful to the local church. It takes work. It's not something that's comfortable to the flesh. There's going to be times it might be uncomfortable, but anything that's worth doing is worth doing right, isn't it? And so Paul, in using this terminology, he evokes the idea of responsibility. He evokes the idea of a trade. He uh, evokes the idea to us of work and of effort. And he says this, that you and I have the responsibility to walk worthy of this vocation. A lot of trades have certain guidelines, uh, certain things. And if you're part of a union or something of that sort, there are certain guidelines that guide the work that you do. And the things that you do have to be worthy of that union that you're a part of or that trade uh, that you're a member of. You have a responsibility to operate and to act in a way that's becoming of that institution Paul says we have a responsibility as members of a church. Let me say that I, I, I would love to say Paul's talking about Walridge Baptist Church here. But I don't have to be a Hebrew or Greek student to understand he's not talking about Walridge Baptist Church. He's talking about the church. Let me say that I do believe in the church. I, I, I don't think it's wrong to believe in the church. I don't believe it makes you universalist to believe in the church. I don't believe that it means you believe in a universal church to believe in the church. 
As you read through the Word of God, you'll find that word church over a hundred times in the New Testament. And the vast majority of them, over 90 of those times, it refers to a local church. I believe in the local church. I believe that the local church is the genuine expression of the church that God operates and works through in this world that we live in. But I also believe that there's more that connects us than just our names on a membership roll. And I do believe that those that know the Lord Jesus Christ are part, are part of the body of Christ. And so I don't think he's necessarily talking about Walridge Baptist Church. What I want you to understand is that in these passages, the only way that you're going to have the respect for, for the local church that you need is if you have the respect for the church that you need to have. And what Paul is dealing with here is our connection to the church, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about the lofty thing that he says to us. We have a responsibility to walk worthy of this vocation. We talk all the time about how unworthy we are. And we are unworthy. By nature, we are unworthy. Even by actions, we are unworthy. But let me say that your walk can be worthy. Even though your nature is not worthy, your walk can be worthy. Even though who you are is not worthy, we can, in obedience to Christ, live in a way that would be pleasing to Him. I think sometimes something gets lost in, in, in the communication because we talk so much about how unworthy we are that sometimes we get the notion that it's not even worth trying to live for Jesus Christ because we'll never really be able to live for Him anyway. Now, I understand that our, our attempts at righteousness are but filthy rags. I'm aware of that. You don't have to tell me that our best is but rottenness before God. But God wouldn't ask us to do something He wouldn't equip us to do. He wouldn't ask us to do something that we weren't able to do by His grace and with His help. And so when Paul says that we're to walk worthy of this vocation, then we do have the wherewithal. And we're going to talk here in a moment about how we have that wherewithal. But notice what he says. The first thing he deals with is our walk. Then look what it says in verse number 2. He deals with our love one for another. He says, "...with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another..." In love. So the first thing he says is that your walk needs to be right. Your testimony needs to be right. Then he says your relationship needs to be right. How we treat one another needs to be right. Churches are notorious for fussing and fighting, aren't they? We joked about it even before the service tonight. But churches are notorious for it. Let me tell you something. People that would never fight at a family reunion will fight in the house of God. People that would never fight at a sports game would fight in the house of God. There's something that is very polarizing sometimes about being in the house of God, and it ought not be that way. I think sometimes it's due to our sense of entitlement and ownership over the house of God. You know, I understand that the house of God, I understand it's not the preacher's church. Don't you understand that? It's not the preacher's church. But let me tell you something, it's not your church either. It's the Lord's church. It's not my church, not your church. I've been very blessed at, at, at Walridge. I, I, I mean, I mean that because I don't want you to think anything I'm about to say I'm saying out of, out of personal experience, but I just know that it's so. I, I've not had to really deal with, uh, you know, with difficult people and deal with people having an entitlement uh, mentality, but I think we've all heard stories and we all know about people who have this mentality. I was here before you came. I'll be here when you're gone. And not just towards the preacher, but sometimes towards deacons or Sunday school teachers or, or choir directors. Or, but this mentality, this is my place and my church. 
I've got news for you, friend. It's not yours and it's not mine. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we get a proper adjustment of our perception, then it helps us in our relationship one with another. And what are we to be striving to do? Look at verse number 3. It says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I'm not going to say everything I'd like to say about that because time would fail me. But let me just say, it doesn't say endeavoring to keep unity at all costs. It doesn't say endeavoring to keep the unity of compromise. It doesn't say endeavoring to keep the unity of uh, acquiescence. But it says endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know what the unity of the Spirit is? If I'm led by the Holy Ghost and you're led by the Holy Ghost, we'll both be headed the right direction. We'll both be headed the right way. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is not saying that I give a little and you give a little. But in fact, what it's saying is I give everything and you give everything. And if both of us give everything to the Lord Jesus Christ, then we're going to have unity one with another. If we're all headed in the same direction that God is, then we're not going to be bumping into each other. So this isn't unity at any cost. My, and my preacher, you say always, you know, there, there's a difference between, uh, you know, just uh, unity and uh, union. And he used to always say, you know, you take two cats, tie their tails together, you've got union, but you don't have unity. And uh, it, it's blind ignorance to uh, ignore the differences that we have one with another and call that unity. That's not unity. Uh, we may be agreeing to disagree, but that doesn't mean that we agree. Where unity comes from is through our surrender and submission to the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's part of the reason there's so much division in churches today. We've kicked the Holy Spirit out in the order of our service, and so our churches are out of order. We're not letting Him lead us, and so uh, we don't want Him to lead us in the way that we worship. And so He's not leading us in the way that we deal with one another. Only if we'll let Him lead entirely will we finally have the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so He's given this exhortation to the church. And he's going to spend the next few verses explaining some things and really giving us a motivation to some of these things. Now, he told us to walk worthy of this vocation. And he's going to spend some time telling us how we can do that and why we ought to do that and why it's important to walk worthy of this vocation. And he does so first off by showing us the singularity of the church. You know, let me tell you something. There there are absolute truths in this world. I know that folks would have us to believe that everything's relative, but it's just not so. I, I, I don't believe there are absolute truths because I'm a hate monger. I don't believe that there's right and wrong because I have some sort of personal problem with those that are wrong. It's just a fact that there's right and there's wrong. I didn't establish that. God established that. It's a fact. It's a law. It's a rule of the universe that there are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong. And when we have a problem with that, we can shake our fist at God. We can be upset about it, but it won't change it. It's just an absolute truth. And the Lord gives us some absolute truths here. He says this in verse number 4, there is one body. There is one body. Now, you say, what does he mean by that? Well, evidently, the Lord's not trying to tell us here that there's only one physical church because that's just not the experience of of humanity. I I mean, uh, let let me say this, that the largest church in Christianity uh, has always been and is today in external terms the Roman Catholic Church. 
And it doesn't take much to realize that the Roman Catholic Church is not a true church according to the biblical principles and ideals of what a church is. Uh, So the idea or notion that there's only one physical church uh, is preposterous. That's not what's being said here. But the same way that there's one head spiritually, and he's the Lord Jesus Christ, there's one body. And those of us, and what is he saying here? He's saying that you're either a part of this body or you're not a part of this body. There's not a bunch of bodies and you're a part of this one or a part of that one, and that's the problem. You know, that's what denominationalism proposes. Let me say that I am an anti-denominationalist. And you don't have to be a non-denominationalist to be an anti-denominationalist either. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, you see churches all the time that say we're non-denominational. Most of the time what they mean is we just don't talk about anything that divides. That's usually what they mean when they say that. Most non-denominational churches are flooded with charismatics. So to say you have to be non-denominational to be anti-denominational, that's false. I proudly claim that I'm a Baptist. I believe it's right to be a Baptist. I don't hate Methodists, I don't hate Presbyterians, but uh, if I believed it was right to be a Methodist, I'd be one. But I don't believe it's right to be one, I believe it's right to be a Baptist. I believe that's biblical doctrine. Uh, I don't fuss and fight and quarrel, I don't think they're bad people, I don't throw rocks at them. Uh, same thing, I don't, I don't throw rocks and fuss at Presbyterians, I don't spend all my time, uh, you know, writing blogs about how that Presbyterians are the problem. But I am what I believe I ought to be in being a Baptist. I believe it's biblical to be a Baptist. Uh, one old preacher said, if I wasn't a Baptist, well, you know, somebody asked me, if you weren't a Baptist, what would you be? He said, I'd be ashamed of myself. <laughs> I believe it's right to be that. I believe it'd be ludicrous to say it does not matter and then still say you're a Baptist. Why well, say you're a Baptist if it doesn't matter what you are, or a Presbyterian or a Methodist? Uh, if it doesn't matter, then why say anything? So uh, what this is dealing with is, is the truth and ideal about the body of Christ and us as members, Paul says in in 2 Corinthians, as members in particular. And you and I, we're either a part of this body or we're not. And that's determined by whether we know the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said it this way, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, what does that mean to be in Christ? Well, in his body. A member of his body. Uh, How does that happen? We're placed in Christ. Paul said that I might be found in Him, not having my own righteousness. So if you've been born again, you're a part of this body. If you've not been born again, you're not a part of this body. He says there's one body. He says there's one spirit. Now again, are we to take that literally? Well, the Bible talks about uh, evil spirits. The Bible talks about, in the Word of God, uh, false spirits and deceiving spirits. So it's not saying that there's literally only one spirit in the world. In fact, you made in the image of God and me made in the image of God. We both have spirits within us. What it's saying is this, that there's only one true valid spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit. It amazes me how that Christians can claim that they're both being led by the Spirit of God and they're both going in different directions. The Spirit of God has a will. Did you know that? He has a will. That will is in harmony with God the Father and God the Son, but He has a will. In fact, Paul says this in the division and distribution of the Holy Spirit, or of the gifts of the Spirit, he says that He divideth unto all men severally as He will. So He has a will. And that will is specific and it's deliberate and it's distinct. And that will will lead me and lead you in the right direction. Now, I understand God's will for your life and God's will for my life may be different as to some details. But when it comes to matters of our relationship with God and what's right and what's wrong and the truths of the Word of God, the Spirit of God's not going to tell you one thing and me another thing. 
The Bible says that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. The Spirit of God leads us according to truth and according to what is His will. In fact, the Bible calls Him the Spirit of truth. He says this, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. There's only one true hope. We could talk about the blessed hope. We could talk about all of the various hopes that are spoken about in the Word of God. But what is the one true hope of the believer? What are we predestined to and looking to as members of the body of Christ? We're looking to the day when we're conformed into the image of God's dear Son. When we'll be made like unto Him. And Paul deals with that here in a moment. He says there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. Again, what he's saying here is there's only one that's valid. We could go through and we could say, well, there's many that would claim to be Lord. We could say there's many faiths and certainly... And by the way, this word faith, as it's being dealt with here, is speaking about a a belief system. And we know that it's speaking about a belief system because down in verse number 13, he says, till we all come in the unity of the faith. So what he's speaking about, the same way that Jude did when he said that we ought to contend, uh, earnestly contend for the faith uh, that was once delivered unto the saints, he's speaking about a belief system. And the Word of God teaches us that there's only one valid belief system. And it's salvation through the grace of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Christ as the Son of God. Uh, It's Christ as God in the flesh. It's Christ, born of a virgin, crucified, made sin for you and I, buried and rose again the third day. It's this system of faith that's revealed to us in the Word of God. In fact, could I just go a step further? And And I don't think I'm doing damage to Scripture when I say this, but there's only one book. There's only one book. There's only ever been one book. And there's still only one book today. When it says there's one faith, what's it really saying? It's really saying there's one book because this book is what outlines to us the faith. There's one book. There's one faith, one system, one belief system, one baptism. Listen, you can be sprinkled, you can be poured, you can be sprayed with a super soaker. But that's not what baptism is. The word baptism literally means to immerse. Every time in the Word of God that we see baptism... They're going down into the water and they're coming up straightway out of the water. You can't come up straightway out of the water if you got sprinkled or if you got poured or if you got a water balloon thrown at you. There's one valid baptism. Now again, Paul's not telling us these things so that we can fuss and feud and fight with people. Paul's telling us these things because they're absolute truth. Paul's not telling us this because he hates those that that maybe believe a different belief system or, or practice a different baptism or, or, or read a different uh, quote-unquote holy book. Paul's not saying that because he hates those people. I think if there's anybody in the Word of God that it's pretty evident that they had a love for a lost sinner uh, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, it'd have to be the Apostle Paul. He said, if by all means, by all means, I may save some. Paul did everything he could. Everything he could to win people. He didn't say this because he hated them. He said it because it's truth. Because it's true. He says there's one God and Father of all. One God. I know that is contrary to the world system today, but it's still true as it's always been true. There's one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, is he teaching? Let me ask you something. Is he teaching uh, universal brotherhood here? No, because he's writing to believers. He's not writing to lost people. The book of Ephesians, probably of any of the epistles of the Apostle Paul, If there was one that I would say is the farthest from being written to a lost person, it'd be the book of Ephesians. 
It's unveiling heavenly truths to those that have been accepted in the Beloved, as he says earlier in the book of Ephesians, those that have been redeemed according to the grace of God. And what he's saying is this, that there is only one God. And so if somebody comes to you and says, I am your brother, but I worship Muhammad or I worship Allah, they're not your brother. Somebody comes to you and says, I, I, I am your brother, but, uh, but you know, I, I worship one of the uh, 280 million gods of, of Hindu. They're not your brother. They may say they are. I'm not saying to spit in their eye and, and throw your shoe at them, but, but that's not true if they say that. Because there are some absolute truths. So he wants us to understand the singularity of this thing. And to understand, by the way, there's something, there's, there's a privilege that comes with being part of something as singular as the New Testament church. I mean, to think that, that there's only one God and He loves you and I. To think that there's only one Spirit and He indwells you and I. To think that there's only one faith and you and I are a part of it. I'm not trying to be elitist. I'm just pointing out that just as we're to walk worthy of this vocation, this vocation is worthy of our walk. And it's worthwhile to live and to walk for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how are we going to do it? Verse number 7 says this, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now, what does he mean when he says the gift of Christ? Does he mean uh, the fact that Christ died for our sins? No, that's not what he's saying. Does he mean the gift of Christ in that, uh, that Christ, in a sense, indwells us or, or that we have an advocate through him? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying the gift that's given by Christ, the gift of Christ, the gift that he gave you and I. And how did he give us that gift? Well, it explains it to us. Verse number 8, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, what gifts did he give us? It says, now he that ascended, or now that he ascended, what is it uh, but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Do you remember what was said in John chapter number 7? Christ cried out on one of the feast days, and he said, Come unto me, everyone that thirst, everyone that thirst, and I'll give you to drink. And John makes this little footnote for us. He says this, This spake he of the Holy Ghost, which was not yet come, because Jesus was not yet crucified. When Christ died for our sins, you know the Bible, and in fact in the book of Ephesians, back in, I believe it's uh, chapter number 1, I don't know if I can uh, glance at it and see it just off the top of my head, but the Bible calls the Holy Spirit of God the earnest of our redemption. Back in verse 13 and verse 14 of chapter 1, speaking of, of uh, those that have been saved, or speaking of Christ, it says, "...in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory." When Christ died for our sins and the blood was applied for you and I, it purchased for us redemption. But you and I, we are not redeemed experientially or effectually in entirety. And you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, we are positionally redeemed. We've been bought with a price. And that's settled and that's done. But our body has not yet been redeemed because it aches and it hurts and it has pain. Our mind has not yet been redeemed because still sinful thoughts try to assault and avail us. Our flesh has not been, it won't be redeemed, it'll be eradicated, but it's not been done away with. So in a sense, even though we're owned by God, we belong to God, we're not in entirety in His hands yet. He doesn't have control over us. 
like He deserves to have control over us. But through the Spirit of God, which is the earnest of our redemption, the little taste of our redemption, we can experience the surrendered and victorious life. So look what it says. Go back to chapter 4. How, uh, the Bible says that he uh, descended, uh, he that descended, verse 10, is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now, there's a fuller list. In fact, there's a couple of them in the Bible about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And it's a worthwhile thing to sit and study about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The only thing anybody ever really talks about when they talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit is tongues. But tongues have been done away with. Tongues was a sign gift, the same way that prophecy was uh, there in the New Testament church. And when that which is perfect has come, and that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away with. And it has been done away with. But there are several uh, gifts of the Spirit. But I don't want to focus on them. I merely want to say this, that what God's called us to do, He'll equip us to do. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, He'll equip us to do that. And He's done that through the death of Christ on Calvary and His resurrection and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But let me say this too, that what God's called the church to do, He'll equip the church to do it. And when God wanted to equip the church, how did He do it? He did it with Spirit-indwelt people. He didn't do it. You know, I, I mean, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If it was just about throwing a building up and putting a steeple up, uh, when He died on the cross and rose from the dead, He would have just come and give us all money. But He didn't do that because that won't affect it. That won't accomplish it. If it was just about gathering crowds and not seeing lives change, then He'd uh, give us uh, the, the gift of charisma and uh, of uh, oratorical ability to speak to people uh, and do it in such a way that people would be wowed and wooed by our words, but He hasn't done that. But what He has called us to do, and we'll talk about it here in a moment, He has equipped us to do, and He's done it through people. What a blessing it is to know that God's chose human instrumentality. That's the way of God. Did you know that? to choose human beings to carry out His will. Uh, listen, he, He's got legions of angels, but He uses me and you. What a blessing that is. What a blessing that is. He's got legions of angels that, that at this point we have every reason to believe they have no free will. They're going to carry out to the T whatever they're instructed to do. But rather than use them, He uses uh, fallen, depraved, but redeemed and born-again sinners to accomplish His will. That's a blessing. And He does that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in them. Now, let me say this, that a Christian that is not filled with the Holy Ghost is a Christian that is not fulfilling their role in the local church. Because the only way we can fulfill it is through the leading and guidance of the Holy Ghost. We all have a role to play. In fact, he talks about that here in a moment. Look what he says. In fact, we'll go down and look at it. Down in verse number 16, he says this, "...from whom all the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplied." Which every joint supplied. "...according to the effectual working in the measure of every part." The book of Second uh, Corinthians tells you and I that we're uh, members in, of the body of Christ and members in particular. And it goes on to draw the analogy that we ought not envy one another concerning our roles in the sense that the eye doesn't say he has no need for the foot, and the foot doesn't say he has no need for the arm. And God's likening you and I to, to members of the body of Christ, literally appendages or body parts in the body 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every one of us is needed to function correctly. For the body to function correctly, every one of us is needed. And if the only way we can fulfill that need, and by the way, a dead limb is of no use, is it? It's of no use. In fact, you know what it is? It's a hindrance and a burden. Let me tell you something. Christians out of the will of God, well, this isn't easy, but you're Wednesday night crowd, so you're mature enough. You don't need milk. You can take strong meat. A Christian out of the will of God is a burden to their church. A Christian out of the will of God is a hindrance to their church. In fact, the only way we can be a help to the local church is by being filled with the Holy Ghost. Now you say, oh, preacher, you mean speaking in tongues, and you mean, no, no, I don't mean speaking in tongues. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Ghost? To be filled with the Holy Ghost means to be empty of everything else and to be totally under His sway and guidance and will and leading. That's what being filled with the Holy Ghost means. I'm not afraid of that terminology. That's scriptural. The Bible says to be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. Let me tell you something. It says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be ye filled with the Spirit. You know, the the thing I'm so scared of in this day that we live in is not Christians that are filled with the Spirit. It's the Christians that are drunk with wine wherein is excess. That verse don't scare me. That doesn't bother me. And by the way, it doesn't say don't uh, to not be drunk with excess. It says be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. In other words, there's excess when you're drunk. It's not saying to not be excessively drunk. Wouldn't that be silly for the Lord to say that? I mean, after He had already told us in the book of Proverbs not look on the wine when it giveth its color in the cup and when it stirreth about, then turn around and say, well, you can drink a little bit, but don't drink much. Wouldn't that be a hypocritical thing for God to do? I think God remembers His Word, don't you? I, I think He'd know better than to do that. But that verse doesn't scare me. A dead limb is of no function to a body. It's just a hindrance. But a limb that's fully operational now, it's a help to a body. You see oftentimes veterans and and people that have seen active duty or maybe even someone that's just had some kind of accident, a car accident, and, and their body is maimed and they're missing an appendage. And you see the way they struggle through life because there's something that ought to be there that isn't there. And when that limb goes to function, something is missing. That's the way the local church is. God places people in a local church. I believe that with all my heart. I believe God has, has devised it in such a way that every single person that's on God's green earth that, gets, that is saved can either be a member of a local church or they can be a starter of a local church. What do you think Christ meant when He said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there will I be? Well, He's the head, isn't He? And we're the body, aren't we? So he says this, some lone nut out there that says that they've gotten visions of of golden tablets that they can see in a hat that some angel gave them. I'm not in that. But where two two people can gather together and both of them align with the Word of God and there's an accountability there and, uh, and there's truth there, that's the beginnings of where I'll call my name. I believe the Lord's good to us in that way. And I believe God plants us in local. And I believe when He does that, we have a job and a responsibility. Now, your job and responsibility uh, may not be one that people see and one that is uh, uh, highly appreciated. It, it may not be uh, a matter of teaching a class or, or preaching a sermon or singing a song. Now, it may be. And if it is, God bless you. That's wonderful. But if it's not, that doesn't mean that it's not important. Every bit of it is important. And so He's given us these things and equipped us, and He's equipped us with people. I've got to move on. Look at verse 12. What, what is the, and I did sort of give a little bit of an outline to this. I want you to notice the activity of the church. 
What's the church doing? Look what it says in verse number 12. It says, why is he giving us these things? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's what the church is to do. That's supposed to be the substance of its effort and the focus of its energy. And it gives us three things. I want you to notice something. Do you know that all three of them have to do with people? The church is a people business. We deal with people. Uh, that's, it's always made me wonder why God called me into ministry, because I don't really like people. Amen? But it's a people business. You hear people say all the time, well, you know, I ran into problems. Well, no wonder you ran into people. Where there's people, there's problems. That's just the way it is. That's a part of it. You might as well go ahead and just be honest with people. You know, and I believe we ought to have courtesy. I believe that. But there's a real danger in this politeness movement. You know that that, uh, you go a step further from politeness and you know what you get? You get politics. That's what it is, isn't it? Politics is just the art of politeness. I think it'd be better if we'd just be honest with people. I think it'd be better if we just learned to love one another and live with one another. Because, let me tell you something, we might as well get along we're going to spend all of eternity in heaven together one of these days. So we might as well learn how to get along. And so he describes three things. First thing is this, perfecting of the saints. We're trying to help Christians become better Christians on an individual level. I, I, I can't even express to you how much of my time in pastoring is invested in just that first statement. The perfecting of the saints. Now, it doesn't say we're trying to make people sinless, but that word perfect, I think we all know our Bible enough to know that that means mature. And one of the chief purposes of the church is to help individual Christians mature in their spiritual walk. Our job is not to keep them unoffended. Our job is not to meet every single need that they have. Our job is not to keep them happy at all costs. But our job as, as a church, as a local church, is to help them mature in their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we were talking about the, today uh, about, you know, it, it's good every now. I mean, the Bible says, be, be angry and sin not. You know that? And, and you know, part, part of being a part of church is, is you'll get upset sometimes. Now, I say, I honestly, I say this before, before the Almighty God of heaven. He knows my heart. I don't know of a single person in this room or out of this room as part of this church that's particularly upset or anything. There's nothing that has occasioned this. But it's just what we've come to in the course of preaching tonight. But the reality is, you know, sometimes it's a little good for us to get upset and then have to learn to get over it. It builds character. Builds character. What happens when somebody always gets what they want? They become insufferable. And so part of the experience of the Christian walk is maturing and growing as a Christian. And the church is there to help us do that. Notice the second thing. It says, for the work of the ministry. This has to do with our public life. In other words, one of the things the churches do is help Christians on an individual level grow in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But another thing we're to do is to reach out of this building and to make an impact in our community and in our neighborhood and to give the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and to try to minister to those that are outside these walls. That's the work of the ministry. You said, what? You say, how do you know that's the work of the ministry? Well, that's how Paul used the context of the idea of ministry. Because he talked about how you and I, how he had been counted worthy to be put, placed into the ministry. What was he talking about? He was talking about his missionary work. Going out and preaching the gospel, being a debtor both to the Greek and to the barbarian, not being ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. The local church is God's only organization for the evangelization of the lost. 
I'm not opposed to other ministries, but understand that there's only one organization, or we say that, organism, whatever. There's only one entity that is perfect in its design. Did you know that? And that's the local church. It was designed by God, and it's perfect in its government. It's per- In fact, you know what I found? The only problems you ever find in a church are people problems. Never a problem with the administration. And I don't mean that the, that the leadership is never wrong, but I mean that there's never a problem in the, in, the, in the structure of it or in the design of it. The problem, if it's a biblical New Testament church, the only problems you're ever going to find are people problems. Because God has patterned for us how the church ought to operate, not to be. And God knows what He's doing. Now, there are extra-scriptural entities, things like, like schools and, and colleges and, and uh, all sorts of ministries that are, that are apart from the local church. And I don't have a problem with them existing, but understand that when you have those extra-scriptural entities, that's not God's chosen means for evangelizing this world. Uh, he said this, Christ said this, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church. He sent out His disciples to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. And to baptize them and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son. He didn't say to put them through a, a college course. or he, he didn't say to go and, and clothe them and, and, and put food in their belly. But to give the gospel out. And that's the function, one of the functions of the local church. In fact, there's no other entity in the world that God has chosen other than the local church to carry out this action, so it falls on you and I. It's our responsibility. Then notice the third thing. It says, for the edifying of the body of Christ, that this church may be built collectively. It speaks about building the Christian individually, but then it speaks about building the church collectively. And that building is not necessarily numeric. I have, I have no issue with numeric growth. I don't think it's a problem uh, to have numeric growth. I think it's wonderful when you have numeric growth. Uh, and the, in the New Testament, the Bible says that they were, uh, that they were saved daily, such as the Lord would. I, I have no issue with that. I, I have no problem with that. But that's not what it says. It says edifying. You know what that word edify means? It doesn't just mean to build, and it doesn't mean to build out. You know what it means? It means to build up. And that's what the local church is to do. We're to be built up in the most holy faith. In other words, we're to be building, but you know, listen now, you can build out and not build well. But the only way to build up is to build right. Am I right? I mean, you can build out. In fact, they, they talk about the, the Hoover towns during the Great Depression, the, the shanty cities that existed all over this country. And I'm sure you've seen things like that in places like Central Park in New York and uh, where there were, were literally just miles of expanses of, of shanty towns and cities, tent cities that were put there by people that were homeless. It took no structural integrity to build out. But you don't build a skyscraper without structural integrity. It takes substance to build up. I'm not against the building out. But the Bible says we're to be built up. In other words, we're to grow and mature. And whatever growth that we do, it ought to be supported by spiritual mature growth. I always like it saying it this way. You know, there's a difference between growth and inflation. There's a difference. Uh, in, inflation is fast, but it's just hot air. Growth is slow and painful, and it takes time. But when you've got something, you've got something. And there's substance to it. Not against the numeric growth, but there must be substance to it. What's the goal of it? Verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. In the unity of the faith. 
Now, that's a contrary ideal in this day of quote-unquote free thought. That well, I, I laugh when I say that because it, with the media we've got in this country, we don't have free thought, but, but propose free thought in this world that we live in. Uh, this idea of the unity of the faith is something that's contrary. Let me say this, that, that there can be no uniformity without unity. Uh, you're only going to have uniformity where you have unity. L- let me explain it a little bit. You can't, you, you've heard the old adage, you can, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. You can put all the rules that you want on people, but if it's not on the inside, it won't be on the outside for long. Without unity, there won't be uniformity. You know why we don't have uniformity in the church today? Let me tell you something. The differences, and I was talking to someone about this today, the differences in churches today are more substantial than they've ever been. You know that there was a time they'd have the big citywide campaigns, and, and I, I, listen, I, I'm, I, I loathe the idea of ecumenicalism. I loathe it. But there was a time when, when Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians, all of them would, would, would they'd come together and have a citywide meeting, and, and they managed to accomplish that, and, and the gospel was given, and souls would be saved, and, and churches would be started. There was a time when they did that. They don't do that anymore. You know why they don't do that anymore? Because the differences are so drastic. There are real substantial differences. I, I, let me tell you something. The differences between between me as, as a local pastor and some other local pastor. It's not just the music. It's not just the dressing. I mean, sometimes we're talking about salvation by grace is a difference. We're, we're talking about whether we have the Word of God is a difference. We're talking about whether uh, about the, the, the effectuality of the blood is a difference with some of them. I mean, you'd be amazed some of the things that people believe. We lost our uniformity when we lost our unity. If we're not both being led by the same Spirit of God, we're not going to both wind up in the same place. So there must be unity to be uniformity. And what's one of the goals uh, in the New Testament church? That we'd all come to a proper understanding of the Word of God. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. Not just unity of faith, but unity of the faith. The faith that was once delivered to the saints. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. Unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that when I read this, I thought at first that what Paul was dealing with was the day when our vile body would be made like unto his glorious body. But I don't believe that's what Paul's talking about. And the reason why is because in verse number 14, what he deals with does not deal with with Christ's return. It deals with a practical, experiential thing in the local church. And so what I think he's saying in verse number 13 is he's saying this, the first thing we have to agree on is the Word of God. Once we come to a unity of the faith, once we know that we're on the same page and we believe the right thing, that that's the means of a knowledge of the Son of God. Let me tell you something, you won't know Christ apart from knowing the Word. It's the only way. It's the only means. It's the only way. Then once we know the Son of God, what does it say? Then there's an effectual outworking unto a perfect man, unto a mature man. Uh, Let me tell you something. Baby Christians don't have a solid understanding and familiar relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And those that are mature, they've only come to that place through a personal, intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not memorizing facts. No, friend, it's sitting at His feet. That's what, that's what makes you a mature Christian. And so, he talks about an effectual outworking of this. And then he says this, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
He does not say, under the measure of the stature of Christ. He says, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, can, can, I, can I kind of explain it to you? Uh, you've seen them before when they have, uh, let's say they were casting some sort of metal, or maybe they were pouring some sort of concrete uh, uh, statue or something of that sort, and they have a form that is the image of what they want it to be. And they take the material and they begin to pour it in. And they keep pouring it and pouring it and pouring it and pouring it until it's full. And then once it's full and it hardens, they take it apart and it looks how it ought to look. In the same way, you and I as Christians, what we're striving for, and I understand we ought to strive to be Christ-like. Does that happen? It happens by being full of Christ. It doesn't happen just by mimicking or imitating It happens by being full of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that happens by being full of His Word. Notice the next verse, and I I don't know how much more I'll get to say. But look at verse 14. I think this is important to note. We see in verse 12 the activity of the church. In verse 13 we see the aspirations of the church. But verse number 14 we see the awareness of the church. One of the things that the church is to do is to equip believers to withstand against doctrinal error. Verse number 14 says that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. How many of you watch Andy Griffith? Oh, good. Everybody's spiritual. Good. You remember Johnny Paul? Johnny Paul's the one that's always telling old wives' tales to Opie. And he'll come to come to Andy, and it doesn't matter what, I mean, it's just some silly old wives' tale. And, and every time he turns around, Opie's saying, well, Johnny Paul said, well, Johnny Paul said. See, that's how a child is. A child will believe anything that you tell him. Isn't that true? A child will believe anything that you tell him. A baby Christian will believe anything that you tell him. You can tell it sometimes. You, you look on, and, and at, uh, let me tell you something, at this point, if you ain't got Facebook, stay off of it. You'll be the better for it. But you get on Facebook sometimes, you go around, you see some of the things that people post. And, and, and just the, the, the blatant unscripturalness of what they're saying. But because it sounded good and it sounded like a thing that ought to come off the Hallmark card, they went ahead and posted it. They went ahead and posted it. See, they'll believe anything. Anything that sounds good, a, a baby Christian will believe. We're speaking specifically of doctrine here. And for most believers, all it has to do is sound good for them to believe it. But the real and true measure is the Word of God. You see, if we know the Word of God by knowing the faith and by being familiar with the faith, then we'll come to a greater knowledge of the Son of God, we'll come to a greater spiritual walk, and we'll be full of Christ, and we'll be in His likeness. And once that happens, once we're a mature Christian, we're no more children, then won't be carried about to and fro with every wind of doctrine. We'll know what we believe, we'll know why we believe it. I believe you ought to know what you believe. And why you believe it. it what, a, what a blessing to have the Word of God. And what a tragedy that so many have the Word of God and have no clue what they believe or why they believe it. I mean, you've got the Word of God in front of you. you have the, we have a more sure word of prophecy, Peter said. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. We ought to get in here and find out why we believe what we believe. We ought not be, uh, and notice this at the end of the verse. 
It says, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Let me tell you something. There are people that do want to lead you astray. I'm not a fear monger. I know pastors that are fear mongers. I mean, they got their people convinced that every other church, you know, that 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 in their church hates God and God's not in it. And I'm not interested in that. But I will say this. There are folks out there that are looking to deceive you. They make their money that way. They sell books that way. They sell DVDs that way and seminars that way. And they're looking to deceive you. The only way you can combat that, listen, you won't know a lie unless you know the truth first. That's, those that can tell a lie from the truth have to know the truth before they can tell a lie from the truth. And that only come, and that's part of the job of the local church. I know it's not a comfortable thing for our flesh to, to expose and to refute Bad doctrine, we're always afraid somebody's going to get upset or they're going to get their feelings hurt or somebody's got an, uh, an aunt, uh, an aunt's brother's cousin's so-and-so that goes to that church and what have you. But let me tell you something. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is too important. And God loves Christians too much. And so He tasked the local church with the responsibility of exposing heretical doctrine and warning believers against it. We have a responsibility to do that. Notice what he says, and I'll close with this, verse 15. But speaking the truth in love. In other words, the exposing of heretical doctrine ought not to breed or or instill in us a contempt or hatred of those that are ensnared by it. But we, in knowing the truth, ought to be comfortable speaking the truth in love. In love. We ought not keep silent, because let me tell you something, silence is not love. Silence is the true contempt. To know the truth and to not speak it, that's contempt. The only way that you can express love if you know the truth is by speaking the truth. You can speak the truth with the wrong spirit, but you can't convey the right spirit without speaking truth. And so we ought to be careful that when we speak truth, we speak truth in love. But speaking truth, the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head even Christ. You know where it ends, and I didn't get to say everything I wanted to, but you know where it ends? It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Growing up into Him. There's a lot of ways you can take that. You know it. Uh, I, I Probably, if I was to give you just a clear biblical exposition of what Paul's saying, I, I think what it's saying is that we gain our nourishment from Him as the head, and we give glory to Him. Because that's what your body does. Your entire body... It supports the head. I don't just, I've got a big head, but I don't mean it because of that. I mean, I mean, the body does what the head tells it to, or it ought to anyways, if it functions right. I think that's probably what Paul's saying. But can I give you a little bit different understanding of it, if that'd be okay? You remember when you were a child and people would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? And you might have said something like this, well, I want to grow up be an astronaut, or I want to grow up and be a cowboy, or... I don't know. I, you know, I want to grow up and dig ditches. I don't know what you want to do when you were a child. <laughs> but what you're saying is that's what I want to grow into. That's what I want to become. The purpose of the local church at the end of the day is to win people to Christ and to help them to be more Christ-like. That's the purpose. That's the heartbeat of the church. I hope that our church, and I believe our church is that way. I hope it is. I hope that's not a prideful statement. If I've got to admit to pride, I guess I will. Everybody's a little prideful. But I, I love our church. I believe we've got a good church. I believe there are always things to improve, but I believe we're pleasing to the Lord. 
But I believe we've got to be careful lest some things slip. We've got to be careful and be vigilant.